All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. We have a very special episode lined up for you today. So we're going to be talking to Izzy, who is a contributor to Lido Dow and Master of Validators. What an interesting title. We're also going to be talking to Ashin, who is one of the co-founders at Obel Network. They, along with other folks like SSV, are pushing forth this idea of DVT, which stands for Distributed Validator, Te Validator Technology. Super interesting idea. Similarly to the Hasu episode, what we're going to start with is kind of from a high level about why self and solo stakers are so critical to Ethereum, the credible neutrality and decentralization of the network. And then we're going to be talking about how DVT actually works in practice, how it enables more solo and self staking, and what that could potentially look like in the future. We got a very interesting timeline from him, so stay tuned for that. Uh, I thought the staking router, I'm going to shout out Izzy here. I thought he gave one of the most intricate detailed descriptions of how the staking router is going to work in practice that I've heard anywhere else. And we really got into the nitty gritty of what some of these modules might look like and the idea of an internal fee market within that staking router, which I found fascinating. All that to say, I'm going to do a super clickbaity thing and tell you, you got to stick around to the end of this episode. We talked about the potential of a restaking module within the staking router. And that was, I'm still sort of thinking about the, the consequences of, of that part of the discussion. So definitely make sure you stick around for that. All right, guys, that's enough for me talking into your ears here. Let's get on to the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. I'm joined, as always, by my fearless co-host, Miles O'Neill. Today, we are lucky to be joined by Oshin, who is the co-founder at Obel. And uh, today, I'm also joined by Izzy, who is a contributor to the DAO and master of validators at the Lido DAO. So, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, super excited about this, guys, and really want to get into, I think, the, the meat of this podcast we're going to be focused on. You know, we've been very focused this, this, uh, so far this season on this idea of decentralization as offense and want to specifically dig into this concept of DVT and how that's going to integrate with the staking router. But before I think we even get into, into that nitty gritty, it would make sense to start a little bit at a higher level. And I'd like to just ask the open question to the both of you. You know, solo staking is something that's seen, I think, as being very critically important to Ethereum and the decentralization of the network. And just kind of a high level question, I'd love to get a state of the union as it as it is uh, on the state of solo staking. How important is it? What are some of the design decisions that Ethereum is making? So just want to communicate to listeners, like, what is the state of solo staking today and how are we encouraging that moving forward? Yeah, I can have a go at that. I think um, the state of solo staking at the moment is in a pretty good place, or at least in my perspective, it's starting to like turn up the words and start to like kind of see a lot of growth. I think over the two plus years that the Beacon Chain has been running at the very beginning, it was, you know, very solo stake dominated. There was lots of, you know, true believers that were in early from Genesis. And then over the kind of the course of a year or two, a lot of the growth in staking has been more in the like big protocolized staking, the liquid staking protocols, particularly when there was no withdrawals and stuff. It was kind of more like safe to lean towards a liquid representation of stake. Um, but now that we have 
the merge behind us and distributed validators is starting to grow. We're starting to see lots of liquid staking protocols in particular really double down on getting more and more solo stakers involved. And um, that's probably where I see things at the moment is there's a renewed interest in getting more solo stakers involved and getting a lot more client diversity in there than we currently are at. So I maybe want to like toss it over to Izzy and see how he sees it from Lido's perspective, but I'm relatively optimistic at the moment. I think it's the busiest it's been in a number of years. Yeah, I think Ashin makes makes a good point that we kind of started off with um, all of like the the protocol diehards or like the people that really believed in this effort um, who had also had the technical acumen. Uh, and that's kind of like the, the Genesis validator set, which consisted uh, majorly of solo stakers. Um, and then we kind of saw uh, a transition, you know, like as, as proof of work Ethereum and proof of stake Ethereum were running in parallel, where let's say larger organizations or at, at least more professional staking organizations started to get um, their their presence on the network, largely because of like the technical acumen. And so uh, it's much easier to start, for example, validating on, on a new network if you already know more or less how to validate. Whereas for solo stakers, it's kind of like a natural ceiling of how many people are technically able and willing to take um, certain amount of like technical risk involved in with regards to running validators and also um, putting that much in Ethereum at stake. And I think there's like a couple of events that have happened um, since the genesis of the Beacon Chain back in, in December of 2020 that have really made it a lot easier for solo stakers to participate. So um, two of those are obviously two of the large Ethereum upgrades that have happened. So the merge itself um, and also the introduction of withdrawals that have like meaningfully reduced the technical barriers and risk surface area that solo stakers would need to kind of like be wary of. Um, there are also like more minor upgrades throughout this. So for example, like we started with OXOO withdrawal credentials. So like the so-called BLS withdrawal keys. Um, and now validators are, sp are spun up with OXO1 smart contract withdrawal credentials that are a lot easier to reason about um, and a lot easier to, to secure and, and things like that. So I think that has also made solo staking easier. And then of course, we've seen a lot of maturity in terms of like the tooling and client software that exists around running validators. Um, arguably in the beginning, uh, the client diversity wasn't so great because there was obviously a few clients that were more mature than others. Uh, but since then we've seen not only new clients um, enter the space, but also like the, the really, really amazing evolution and growth of a lot of the other clients. So there's at least four or five clients that are almost at parity, I would say, both in terms of feature set and in terms of how easy they are to use. But we also have tooling that rests on top of or to the side of these of these clients. You know, it might be like Docker um, installations that you can use or front ends that allow you to kind of like set up your validator however you want to set it up with things like Avado or Dapnode. So all of these kinds of things coming together um, are cul culminating in what I would say is kind of like a um, reintroduction of, of a new set of solo stakers to the protocol. So people that have been learning about Ethereum and proof of stake over the last two and a half years. Um, but also now that have much more tooling and knowledge at their at their disposal to be able to like be feel safe enough and competent enough to to dip their toes in. So we see that um, liquid staking protocols or staking protocols in general are also meeting this kind of like renewed demand for solo participation, which I think is is vital to a network like Ethereum um, by adding new ways for people to participate. Yeah, I think that's really well said and. Izzy, I think you touched on a critical component, which is just reducing the complexity overall for solo stakers. And maybe we can get into almost a setup of what a solo staker requires today. But I would love to also get a sense of 
you know, Sriram, who Miles and I are going to talk to on the next episode, who's obviously the the founder at, at Eigenlayer, talks about market forces. Actually, you might have dApps in the future that want and will actually pay a premium for a block space that's more decentralized and perhaps run by solo stakers. I think the idea here being that, you know, what, what I'm trying to get at a little bit is sort of the core reason why Ethereum wants solo stakers, which I'd always thought of as you want this to be a robust network, both and robust in, in some senses mean it's geographically distributed and it's not easily shut down, you know, against some sort of government intervention. I mean, how do you guys think about the, the sort of need overall for Ethereum to be decentralized and the key role of solo stakers? Is that about right? Or are there other components that I'm missing there? So maybe I can take a first stab at this and Ashin can follow up. Um, there was actually a, a recent podcast that Justin Drake was on where he had a take on this that was perhaps a little bit spicy. I listened um, to this. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. So, so he, he basically said like the two most important things for, um, or I mean, paraphrasing, or at least the way that I understood it, just so, to make sure that he doesn't get mad at me. Um, like the two most important things for like a truly decentralized um, and, and robust like blockchain are censorship resistance and credible neutrality. Mm -hmm. um, and decentralization is basically the most surefire way to get those things, right? But it's not absolutely necessary if you somehow find a way to get those in another way. Um, to a certain extent, I think that's true. But I think um, the fact that decentralization is so important and like baked into the ethos of a lot of these kind of initiatives and 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 projects that we're we're doing, right, to kind of like revitalize financial infrastructure, means that decentralization always needs to. Um, exist, at least in the form of the common person being able to participate in the network um, as a buffer against credible neutrality um, or censorship resistance at some point being capturable or attackable. Um, you kind of always need this um, security mechanism, if you want to call it that, or like perhaps in, in the parlance of like American constitutionalism, like a Second Amendment right for, for a, like a militia of people that are always going to be there to um, uphold the values of of this kind of like digital sovereign. Um, and I think it also really ties into this idea of uh, what we're trying to do uh, with crypto, right? Um, the idea that everybody can participate by helping disintermediate power. And the best way to do that is by having as many people involved as possible. Um, I know that that might sound a little bit contradictory coming from somebody that, you know, participates in the Lido DAO, but what we're trying to do, um, so like, actually, Mike, I think this, this might have been a conversation that we we're having a couple of weeks ago, mm. but there's this kind of like this idea, um, like there is in Jurassic Park, you know, where there's this quote that life finds a way, like money finds a way. Um, so what all of these systems are trying to do um, is ensure that there is like risk management um, and principled ways to, let's say, curb the most pernicious effects of the financialization of things while empowering people to participate in these eco ecosystems, to secure these e ecosystems, um, and to have like a voice and power uh, in everybody's collective future. And so I, I think to that extent, that's why solo staking is, is vitally important and why networks like Ethereum that have, to a large extent, um, bar some like hiccups, let's say, or, or technical design decisions that have been built around the idea that anybody should be able to run a node um, and that many, many people should run a node uh, is why they're so successful and have so much cultural mindshare within uh, blockchain ecosystems. Izzy, you just reminded me that I even secured your permission. I love that quote so much, money finds a way that that was going to be the title of this season and then I just forgot. 
So <laughs> I'm glad we at least worked it into this episode because I like that idea so much of, of money finding a way. And I wanted to start this conversation by just, you did a great job uh, just highlighting why solo staking is so important. And I think one of the big, the big hiccups to that or, or roadblocks, if you will, is just many, there's a limited number of people who are competent out there to run the, the sort of hardware requirements. And that's where I want to segue into DVT, which is short for Distributed Validator Technology. If you hadn't heard about that before, my guess is that you're going to continue to hear about that quite a bit in the coming months and years. And Sheen, you and Colin at, at Obel and, and other platforms like SSV have been pioneering this idea. So can you kind of just give us the broad strokes of what Distributed Validator Technology is and like how it actually accomplishes that problem of uh, or that, that solution of encouraging more solo staking? Yes, happy to. So distributed validators are the idea of running an Ethereum or any other type of blockchain validator, validator on more than one machine instead of them just being like one single server. What's nice about this is you can then introduce fault tolerance where if you know one of your machine goes down, you'll still be online. Um, this is something we don't have in the Web3 and proof of stake space as of yet. To my knowledge, the vast majority of proof of stake chains your validator is, you know, one private key that signs messages and, you know, different chains punishes downtime, you know, more and less severely. But Ethereum is one that will punish you if you're down for even kind of six minutes. Um, so what distributed validators do, most validators and most servers, machines die all of the time. You know, don't expect your server to stay on and not need an update and, you know, ne never need touching for years at a time. Um, and if you're a solo staker, you're basically on call 24 7, 365. And, you know, if you want to have uptime like the professionals, you need to have redundant hardware usually ready to go if a drive dies or you want to be on call, being able to be, you know, woken up in the middle of the night if you go offline. None of these are, you know, super scalable for uh, a one man solo operator or something like it. So when you have distributed validators and you're now working in groups, um, if, if your node goes offline, no big deal. The other three will keep it up and keep it online. This is useful, you know, just generally for having better uptime. The example I can give is I've been running as a solo staker and as partly as an enterprise validator since Genesis. The enterprise nodes I've deployed have 99.9% .9 uptime, you know, for the last two plus years, whereas the solo node is at about 97% because, you know, machines die and I'm not always around. But with DVs, the goal is that you can get, you know, up towards three nines and more of uptime. And, you know, a group of home stakers should be as effective as, you know, your professional load operators. And that's kind of what DVs aim to achieve. And it, it's the goal is that, you know, solo staking, you know, you more or less never go down as so long as you have a group of people working with you or squad staking is often being kind of picked up as the, the naming for it. But yeah, I think that's kind of short description of distributed validators. That's really excellent. I, I want to actually get a little bit more in the weeds with you here. And one of the one of the questions that I think Miles and I want to drive drive towards here is just exactly not even in the the current state, but the future state of how low could we get the hardware requirements implementing something like DVT? I mean, is there a future here where uh, solo stakers could be running some of this stuff basically on their their cell phone? But before we get there, I actually want to just make this a little bit more concrete for what Obel the protocol looks like. And I know there are sort of four main components here. So, you know, you've kind of got the DVT launchpad and user interface. You've got 
a new custom middleware client uh, called Caron, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, Obel managers, and then Obel, Obel testnet. So could you kind of just walk us through the, you know, the core components of the protocol? And if I missed anything, yeah, I just want to give uh, listeners a little bit more of a concrete sense of what this is going to look like in practice. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start up at the high level with the user interface or what we call the distributed validator launchpad. So this came out of a problem where, you know, you want to work with other counterparties, but, you know, you need to trust them or at least you need to, you know, figure out what you're going to do together. You're going to make a proposal. Um, you know, what are we going to validate? How many keys are we going to validate on what chain? You know, is this going to like point at a certain particular withdrawal address? Is it, you know, in Lido or otherwise. Um, so we originally kind of did all of this on the command line. You'd kind of prepare this, look, look at like long bytes of strings and stuff, but it's really difficult to kind of be confident that you're setting up what you expect to set up with, you know, other counterparties if you're just looking at kind of output on a terminal. So we developed the distributed validator launchpad, which is a spiritual successor to the Ethereum launchpad that was, you know, put in place by um, the Ethereum Foundation consensus and others at Genesis. And the idea behind it is it's meant to be a user interface to walk you through the process of setting up a distributed validator. And um, to use it, you log on, one person makes the proposal. So they might say that, hey, you know, Mike, Miles, Izzy, and myself, we're all going to run a distributed validator together. I put, in, I put in all of your Ethereum addresses. I say we're going to make, you know, 10 validators and it's going to be on mainnet. And we're going to send them all to this, you know, no so safe address. And then I send you all the link. You guys can eyeball it. You can, you know, click view on Etherscan. You make sure I'm not trying to send this to my ledger or trying to kind of bait and switch you guys with, you know, what we're supposed to be setting up. And once everyone is kind of approved and signed off that they like are happy with the terms and conditions, you then move over to the command line and, and to Caron, which is the like software client. Um, Caron um, is a middleware. It sits in between your consensus client and your validator. So it more or less is just an extra piece of software that you put on your node, kind of like how MEV, MEV boost you kind of add in. And one of the jobs it does is it will facilitate the key creation for your validator. Meaning um, what's special about a distributed validator is there is in the happy path or the way we encourage people to use it is there's no one human with access to the private key. Instead, the four of us would all come together We'd run a bit of software and it would spit out, I call it four one thirds of a private key. It's not quite exactly how it works, but everyone, like each of us have a piece of the private key and we need three of us to, you know, put together the full private key. Um, that even, you know, day one has you in a much safer place and when it comes to getting compromised or if someone like stealing your private key and getting you slashed. Um, and at this point, yeah, you're now looking at like you have a deposit data, you, you want to activate that validator. Maybe this validator is, you know, working as part of a liquid staking protocol. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a custom one. Um, the Obel Manager smart contracts I alluded to, these are splitter contracts for the most part. We have a few different varieties in the works that we're hoping to kind of show more of the world soon enough. But this is the idea of, you know, do we guys want to split this 25% each way? Are we all contributing different amounts? Maybe we don't want an equal split. Maybe we're doing this on behalf of somebody else so that somebody else gets 90% and we're splitting 10. Um, that's kind of where the manager contracts come into play. And then the test nets is tooling related to letting people run this and you know ensure that this is going to work for them, get them to kind of learn how to mine DVs and work with one another so that they can do this in production. So that's kind of a, well, I will say that this is a tour of kind of where we're at currently with their, you know, Obol as a protocol, 
one of the things that we didn't mention here more broadly is in the kind of earlier versions of distributed validators, you need to trust your counterparties. You need to kind of work together. If Miles goes offline, you have to kind of hit him up on Telegram and be like, hey, man, your, your node's offline. Can you go sort that out, please? Come but on, if you, you know, <laughs> Yeah, if you leave it offline, there's nothing, a whole lot we can do to kind of force anything to change. Um, but in the future, we're working on uh, succinct proofs of who is online and who is offline. And that eventually it's like, okay, if Miles is off for a week, he gets penalized and we get all the rewards. So we're not as upset if he's offline. But that to do that in an ungameable manner that you know you can't kind of cheat is quite difficult. So that's why we kind of refer to that as our distributed validator protocol or kind of our future version where we get this, you know, it's all in cryptography. There's no human kind of social layer consensus going on. I think that's a great overview of kind of where we're at today. And, you know, and I think about the barriers to, I guess, making uh, self-staking more, more prevalent. I think about one, the hardware requirements, um, to the actual capital requirements, right? And you've already made great progress in bringing that down from 32 ETH. And then three, just maybe the natural incentives for, for folks that are not, you know, naturally passionate about this technology and, and decentralization of the network. Um, but just starting with those first two, you know, if I could ask you to look forward into the future a few years, um, I'm very curious to get like a sense of how low we could get the hardware requirements and as well as the capital requirements, you know, it's just something that one day we could run on our phone, like, like the Solana phone, um, you know, or some version of that, or, or, you know, if I have one ETH at some point, will I be able to, you know, maybe mint an LST from, from the staking router? So I'd love to ask yeah. you to project forward a, a few years and, and, and uh, how you hundred percent. I don't even think it's a few years more likely. Um, so the first one of running on a phone, I think you make a, a great point there. This is something that distributed validators, I think, is you know very beneficial for. There's been lots of people that have worked on you know building clients to run on very low resource hardware, but you know you don't want to cut it too fine. You might say, or like at the at the very extremes, particularly with mobile, you know your internet is connecting, disconnecting. You're not going to be on 24/7, 365. So we think running low powered validator nodes is much more suited to like run in a distributed validator than to run, you know, something like full and solo. And um, particularly if you're a solo staker trying to run this all yourself, you're like, I want fault tolerance, but I, you know, don't really want to run some, give it to someone else. It's like, cool. I run one in, you know, my house, my friend's house, my phone and, you know, some other thing. Um, that's kind of how you kind of have lots of fault tolerance. And then on the capital requirement side, I think that is also something that can be mitigated by distributed validators because you don't have to have the same amount of bond if somebody isn't like you know god mode over this validator and have total control if they're just kind of you know one piece and you assume that even if they were offline malicious you know worst case scenario they're you know not harming the validator too broadly so long as there's not a few of them that are offline it, it really reduces the risk profile of actually bringing them in and delegating some other stake and I maybe want to throw it over to Izzy on that regard because collateral requirements for staking is a kind of a, a big, you know, testy subject when it comes to like delegated staking and should validators be collateralized, you know, Lido famously is not, but they have, you know, plans both for collateralization and also for how solo stakers can get involved with and without collateralization. Um, so maybe you want to see how he thinks about DVs and its impact on hardware and collateral. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe even going back to like one of the original questions, which is 
Um, what is the presence of you know solo stakers on the network right now? What does that mean for the network? What are the barriers for 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 solo staking existing? Um, because that ties into like the whole question around bonding requirements. So uh, apart from like the technical complexity and and the operational complexity, um, which is much reduced, and also the technical like surface risk, um, which is also much reduced due to the the recent Ethereum upgrades. Um, we contend with the issue of like financial approachability of of the enterprise of running a validator, right? So obviously, if you were solo staking, um, you needed to not only have uh, 32 ETH in order to be able to, to run the validator, but you needed to have it like in the beginning. Um, so it's really hard to like borrow it and then run a validator. Um, and so what a lot of liquid staking protocols basically did was allowed people um, to participate in the grander, let's say, uh, collective enterprise, uh, not in the sense of a business sense, but a, like uh, a community effort of um, securing the Ethereum network without necessarily having that minimum 32 ETH. Uh, obviously, distributed validators um, like like Obel is working on or even like SSV is working on allows users to do this by um, putting their money together. So like you split the 32 ETH into multiple smaller pieces of a deposit. Um, depending on how many people participate in the cluster. And then therefore you can have like collective participation of one full node um, via more participants as opposed to you know one person needing all of that capital. And then you also have like permissionless liquid staking models um, like Rocket Pool, which also has been very, very successful in terms of adding net new node operators to the network. And I think this should be lauded for that, um, where basically you had a uh, capital uh, collateral or, or bond requirement where a node operator or at least a capital allocator associated with his node operator puts, puts up a certain amount of money. Um, and then the remainder, let's say, of the balance on that validator um, can be can come in from injection, sorry, from injections from stakers. Um, so normal people who would participate in, in, in LSTs. Um, in general, uh, when we started with, and by we, I mean like in, in Ethereum staking as a whole, uh, with per permissionless bonded validators, this bonding requirement had to be very, very high, right? Um, Rocket Pool started with 16 ETH. And now we've seen that liquid staking protocols have started to reduce this bonding requirement based on a number of different factors. So one is obviously the maturation of protocols themselves, but also the underlying network layer. A second thing is that there are upgrades in the works um, that will potentially make it so that if a node operator like disappears or is unrespondent or like loses access to their validator keys for some reason, um, the network will be able to issue a command to this validator via the execution layer, uh, which means that liquid staking protocols can do this via smart contracts to eject um, these validators, right? And so we call this like triggerable exits. Um, and this is an EIP that will hopefully come sometime next year at a couple of hard forks, perhaps after after Dankun, or maybe even they meet at hard fork after Dankun. Um, and there are, so, so let, that in concert with a lot of other things, uh, for example, that historically we actually haven't seen that many slashings, and slashings, um, it's very, very difficult for them to ramp up to the amount of like slashing a full 16, not a full 16, but up to 16 ETH on a validator um, has basically led protocols to do like a risk adjusted uh, implementation of what is the sizing that bond should be. So obviously like the main thing that reducing bonds means is that you lower the barriers to entry for interested participants, right? Um, it also means that there's a corollary that the people that have already put up the bonds can basically just multiply the amount of validators that they have using the existing capital by rolling it forward. Um, but that's also not necessarily negative, providing that, that these people are actually, you know, like 
independent node operators and, and smaller uh, organizations. And distributed validators adds like an even more kind of like interesting aspect to this. Um, if we get to a point where risk analysis, for example, after we have EIP 7002, which is the triggerable exits uh, functionality that we were discussing, allows you to exit validators. And this happens, let's say, within a year, and everybody collectively believes that this will happen within a year. You can say that on a worst case scenario, if a liquid staking protocol were to launch with a very small amount of bond, um, like let's say four ETH or less, uh, and that this upgrade happens within a year, Realistically speaking, like it's very unlikely that such a large amount of node operators will go offline, um, that that amount of money or, or loss that they cause to the protocol will be so, so substantial as to not take that risk to lower bond that much. And DVs allow you to lower it even more. So if you say that you have four ETH bond for a, node, uh, for a validator, um, you could split it across four participants, for example, like in a three or four model, like Oshin was saying, or you can split it even more into like a five or seven model. But you can maybe even say that due to the fact that it's so much more difficult to get three, four people, let's say, or three people, because that's the consensus threshold, to align on doing something nefarious, we we lower it even more. Because this idea of, you know, like multi-party agreement needing for, for something to happen, um, it's a lot easier to make people agree for things that are like mutually beneficial and a lot more difficult for them to agree on something that's like malicious or nefarious. Um, so that even unlocks another potential in, in further reducing bonds and further increasing, let's say, the breadth of economic actors, i.e. solo stakers that will, would be able to, from a financial perspective, and interested participate. I think that's, that's a great overview um, and can see the direction we're going here. But I think I have kind of one more question before we move on to the staking router. And that is like, once we get these barriers as as low as possible, both on the hardware, the capital, um, then it becomes a question of, you know, how do you like productize or package this in a way that it with a value prop that resonates with, you know, a larger population of users, maybe beyond this kind of crypto native um, and, and very passionate folks about Ethereum, right? It's and I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. But you know, is there ways that you could make an app better? if you were running a DB, you know, on your phone or something, something else like that, or is, you know, it, it, we've talked a lot about the principal agents problems associated with, you know, LSTs. You could argue that, you know, you mitigate a lot of these problems by minting your own LSTs, you know, as, as part of a permissionless set. And so, yeah, just curious to hear, you know, early thoughts on like how you plan to, to really frame this value prop to a, to a larger set of users. Yeah, I think I'll start with that one. And maybe the first thing I would say is that the value prop to different staker entities is quite different. Not everyone kind of sees the same you know, pros and cons in, in DVs. Um, we've talked a lot about the solo staker. So for those guys, it's you know high uptime for my own node if I'm so lucky that I have a full validator or a route into the liquid staking pools if they don't have you know the either the collateral to either have a full one or to have you know the bond for like, some of the other protocols so that's kind of the the solo stakers um benefit the benefit to the liquid staking protocols i'll touch on maybe lightly and maybe as can expand on but for those like protocols it's a, it's about de-risking you know the stake that they give to their operators right now they have to have like they're making a you know a big amount taking a huge amount of trust in like the operator that they like allocate you know millions of dollars of stake to and this currently 
forces them to pick the like reputable big brand name, you know, nowhere going nowhere type of node operator. But they'd much rather push the kind of extremes of that and go down the kind of to the more solo staker. But it's kind of hard to take that risk if they have total control. And then the one we haven't talked about is maybe the more centralized operator, which, you know, does exist and is a non-trivial part of the like stake in Ethereum. For these people, distributed validators is more on the cost side and the like, operational side is what they really gain. Um, having cheap software-based fault tolerance um, really can impact their operations, particularly in how they've deployed. A lot of these centralized providers, because there's no safe way to run a backup, have not moved towards more bare metal or on-premise machines and instead kind of stay closer to the cloud side. Because if a machine dies in the cloud, you can kind of press a few commands and detach the, the disk where the private key is and be like, cool, I'm like back in charge of that private key. Whereas if it's on a, like a, a real machine and a real server somewhere and that thing dies, you can't talk to it, you can't get to it. You need to like plug it out at the wall. Um, so most of them haven't gone that way. Um, but with distributed validators, they can you know, move to more on-prem, they can kind of come out of the cloud, they can keep all of their keys with separate people. They don't have you know, one human that has kind of the keys to the kingdom. And even when they're like upgrading versions, they don't have to take their software offline and they can, you know, do general maintenance. The one I always talk about is you're not, you know, pinging your DevOps in the middle of the night to be like, hey, you have an outage, you need to get to it within an hour for our SLA. It's like, oh, we've lost one, fix it in the morning. Okay, we've lost two, hit the alarm, get out of bed. But for the most part, yeah, they, they can save hardware, they can save risk, and they can save operational expenses with DVs. Um, and that's, you know, generally the case with most others as well. But yeah, that, that there's no one benefit for everyone, I guess, each, each kind of type have a different kind of pro and con to it. That's a really interesting point you brought up um, to the end in terms of like, we're going to have to seriously reconsider like what kind of alerts wake us up in the morning. Um, because if, if we're running a fleet of distributed validators and our alerts are still like, uh, you know, the validator is, has been down for 15, 20 minutes, that's like catastrophic. It, it's not, <laughs> it means like there's at least two people out of four, you know, that are, that aren't doing their job or, th or three people out of seven or something like that. Um, so uh, we're going to really need to change how we, how we do our monitoring and, and alerting. But on the other hand, it also means that we'll have to wake up a lot less than, than we do right now. Yeah, that's the hope. <laughs> nice. That's a good goal. As a lover of sleep, I, uh, I am pro that idea. So I, I want to I transition here into talking a little bit uh, and just sort of set the stage for why we're talking about self-staking and DV technology within the, the context of the staking router and, and Lido. And, one key theme of the, the season, I think Hasu put it best in the last episode, is this idea of decentralization as offense, especially for protocols like Lido or other liquid staking providers, because Lido does something that's so core and close to the metal of Ethereum that in order for it to continue to grow its market share and continue offering great services to folks that want to stake, we want to make sure that it's as decentralized as possible. And there are two key ideas. I think we really want to dig into the staking router little bit here, but I also want to, Izzy, just poke at you for sort of a high level on dual governance between Lido and, and Steve as well. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode here, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. 
If you listen to the App Chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is Bell Curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. But let's get into the nitty gritty of, of the staking router. And you know, for context, this actually went live. So Lido V2 uh, is, you'd know the exact date, but I think it went live a couple months ago. Uh, and that introduced withdrawals and this idea of the staking router. And I actually, before we even get into what that is and how that, you know, we've been sort of teasing the how that applies to DBT and having different modules. I actually want to get a sense of how things worked before. So we get a sense of what the original state for something like Lido was, and then how the staking router is going to be a massive improvement there. And I've actually got for you here, you bear with me while I share my screen, a helpful diagram that maybe we can walk through. And for folks who aren't listening, I can try to describe a little bit about what this is, but it's a it's a diagram of some of the core processes of, of Lido. And so Izzy, if, if you wouldn't mind just sort of walking us through this diagram so we could understand how it used to work within Lido, and then we can go through the shift that, that has taken place with the introduction of the staking router and just explain what that is. Sure. Um, so uh, let me try to read through this diagram now. Uh, basically, the original version of the Lido on Ethereum protocol uh, was what we call now the curated operator set. Uh, it consists of a node operator registry that is made up of a list of curated, i.e. permissioned by the Lido DAO, meaning um, that they are proposed to the DAO and the DAO ratifies the acceptance of these node operators joining uh, as uh, users basically that can use the protocol, but on the validator side. Um, and this node operator registry creates or the participants in the registry rather create validators um, undeposited to, so just the validator keys themselves and, and the deposit slips. They submit these to the on-chain software, the, the protocol through the node operator registry. And this creates a buffer, let's say of validators that are waiting for deposits. Mm. Uh, when a user goes to uh, the Lido smart contracts, either via a front end like Lido.fi or just by interacting with the contract directly, they submit ETH to the Lido uh, on Ethereum smart contract. And this ETH goes to uh, a buffer, basically. And whenever um, there is enough ETH in the buffer for it to constitute a certain increment, let's say, of uh, a whole number of validators, i.e., like if you have eight ETH and you can't fund a validator with that, you wait until there's multiples of 32, um, it gets deposited to the deposit contract uh, on the execution layer side, meaning like the, the Ethereum 2.0 uh, as it used to be called, uh, deposit contract, where all of the staked ETH goes. And actually, it's this, this really interesting like accounting uh, thing with Ethereum, where all of the staked ETH is just sitting there on a contract uh, on the execution layer, mm -hmm. um, and basically gets uh, deposited at the same time or mapped to a certain validator key um, that has been input into this, this buffer ahead of time uh, by node operators and node operator registry. So there is a staking allocation mechanism that happens uh, behind the scenes on-chain, like none of this is, is off-chain, whereby the node operator with the least amount of currently active keys is always prioritized for new stake. Um, what this means is that operators that joined the protocol earlier, so for example, like when the protocol started, 
uh, back in December of 2020 or, or January 21. Um, if, if say that they're all running a thousand each validators each right now, and there's a new cohort of no, oh, node operators that join, the new node operators get all of the new ETH provided that they have submitted validators to the buffer until they catch up with the previous cohort. And then it's like a round robin fashion. Um, this was a design decision that was purposely made to basically distribute um, staked ETH as fairly as possible across the entire node operator set. So we find ourselves uh, now, you know, on the, on the 13th of July, 2023, like two and a half years later, uh, the node operators, uh, the curator registry basically consists of 29 operators right now. Technically it's 30, but the two merged in a, in a business or fiscal sense sometime after they joined as node operators. And so mm -hmm. the protocol treats them as one. Um, and there is a really, really good distribution of stake across the set. So no one node operator has vastly more amounts of stake um, being operated through them uh, as a result of, you know, like Lido stake ETH demand than, than other node operators, unless they've specifically, for example, chosen not to um, add more validators. And there might be business decisions behind that or scaling decisions behind that, and et cetera. Um, and just one thing to note is that, so after ETH was submitted to the Lido contract and before it actually gets deposited, um, there's two kinds of like, uh, off-chain things that that happen. One is a deposit security module um, and the oracles. These are off-chain mechanisms that end up having on-chain impacts. Uh, so the deposit security module is basically the bot that determines when to uh, deposit new ETH to these validators. It looks at a couple things like what's the current gas price. So you know if gas is in the hundreds, maybe it, it won't do deposits until gas goes down a bit. Um, and it also double checks the integrity, let's say, and the correctness of the data that has been submitted by node operators um, so that something incorrect isn't done. Uh, and the oracles are responsible for reading, obviously, the balances of validators on the beacon chain. And this is how the whole rebase mechanism for, for SDETH works. Um, but from a uh, staking perspective, they're also responsible for making sure that the contract has updated information with regards to like how many uh, validators each node operator is running in terms of how many are active. So this was, this was V1. And the the kind of like large improvement that I would say that happened here, as there was, which is one of the two main components of uh, Lido v2, which was the upgrade to the Lido and Ethereum protocol, I think on the 15th of May. So one was obviously adding the support for withdrawals, and the second one was the framework um, for the functionality of the staking router. So the staking router itself is kind of like an architectural decision about how the Lido protocol should work. It took what was previously happening in Lido v1, which is this curated node operator registry, and it encapsulated it into the first of eventually, I hope, many modules um, that might be built by Lido contributors, might be built by third parties, and might be built by some um, conjunction of the two or, or collaboration of, of the two, and basically transforms um, Lido from like a very, very specific thing into a thing that allows you to create plugins that attach to uh, the main set of, of, of Lido smart contracts, and then therefore allows Lido to work more like a marketplace of stake allocation rather than like uh, a, a very specific thing. So when a user goes and eventually, let's say, deposits ETH into, into Lido, uh, as it is right now, the staking router will make allocation decisions for which modules the stake um, should go to. It'll mm -hmm. do this at least in its first iteration, once there are um, new modules. Right now, there's only one module. It's the current uh, curated operator registry. Um, it, it'll do it in a very similar fashion to how it, it allocates stake between node operators within a module. So let's say that there's a new module that's created tomorrow. 
this module is running using distributed validators and allows solo stakers to participate. This module will have a total maximum allocation threshold, uh, which is in terms of the total amount of stake that flows within the Lido protocol. So let's say 1% of, of stake within Lido. Um, this threshold will be um, configurable and manageable by the DAO itself. And so if the new module is created tomorrow and it has 0% uh, of, of total Lido stake in it, and its maximum threshold is 1%, all of the new stake that goes to, uh, that gets added to Lido basically, will flow to this new module and until it reaches that 1%. Once it reaches that 1%, the curated operator, operator registry, which is like the mainstay module, will act as like, like a, a bucket and pick up any additional stake until the DAO either adds new modules or decides to change what the maximum threshold um, for the second module is. And this process will repeat as, as more modules are added and um, can even change it depending on, um, sorry, if you add modules that work slightly differently, but maybe we can get to that a bit later. So the main change is that V2 brings the staking router and the staking router is a framework for designing validator sets that can attach to the lighter protocol. So instead of saying we will have one vault that works this way, one vault that works with permissioned uh, node operators that do not post bonds, one mod, one vault that works with non-permissioned operators uh, with a strict bond model. We create the staking router, which allows you to design your own vaults. And then these vaults can be attached to the lighter protocol based on a DAO decision. So the DAO would need to do like a security assessment, a risk assessment, and probably some sort of like smart contract audit to figure out if it's safe. It would then assess the economics and the tokenomics of these proposed modules. And then once they're added, it can manage what the stake allocation to these modules is. Mm. That's Izzy, super helpful question or uh, explanation there. And I'm going to get into a whole bunch of different questions there. One other way I think it was helpful for me to think about this. And if you're a little bit more financially minded or comfortable looking at a balance sheet, we're actually looking at a very high level illustrative sort of version of a balance sheet of Steve, both before and after the staking router gets implemented. This uh, shout out to Adrian from Steakhouse Financial. This comes from a blog post that he wrote, but it sort of shows you this this idea of the you know the assets and liabilities of Steve. You know, pre staking router, you see that it's the asset is all this this one big green block which is staked either in the curated uh, validator set or the whitelisted validator set that that Lido used to have. The liabilities are Steve because that can be withdrawn. And then there's a surplus, which I guess is kind of like the insurance fund or maybe the treasury or something like that. But there's some surplus in the case of a slashing event or something like that. Now, uh, we sort of seen a transition, you know, when Lido V2 has actually happened. And with the, the staking router, instead of the, the assets of Steve being one big green block, you can see there'll be multiple different blocks of different types of validator sets. So you could have professional node operators. Maybe that's the, the whitelisted set that we have today. Uh, but I actually want to... Uh, the, the first question that I that I have for you guys is like if you had to take a, a poke or a guess at some of the modules that we could expect, right? One is is DVT, and this is finally how we're going to connect, right? This idea of the staking router and DVT because that feels like an, an obvious module. There also could be, I know in the um, the blog post on HackMD that Lido, they suggest there could be a community uh, set as well. DAOs feel like uh, another obvious fit, uh, perhaps. Um, uh, even like an in, a more institutional set of validators, something like that. So I'd love to, you know, Izzy, I, I know this is all, you know, very new and, you know, there's probably some stuff that you might not be able to mention as your position as master of validators, but like, could you kind of give us a sense in, of, of the diversity of what some of these modules might actually end up looking like in practice? 
Yeah, that's that's a really great question. So, and like all of this is still to a certain extent up in the air because uh, the way that it, it'll work from a governance perspective is that there basically needs to be a module design presented to the DAO. Uh, it'll kind of look like a, like a technical architecture design record, probably with accompanying uh, technical specs and maybe even like a business case. Uh, and then the DAO decides whether these modules get get added or not. But the the really kind of like important and, and the linchpin here is that um, although the diagram we're looking at kind of separates, like you said, like the assets column into different um, node operator classes. So professionals, small groups, DAOs, solo stakers, and things like that. Modules them, themselves can, are more like like channels for node operators as opposed to segments of node operators. Like, what do I mean by that? So if, for example, um, there are modules that use distrib distributed validator infrastructure, and I think there will be like a lot within the next 12 to, to um, 18 months, and by a lot, like, I mean, three to four, which is quite a lot if you consider that one module right now houses uh, all of this, like hundreds of thousands of stick thief. Um, operators that are both professionals or solo stakers or like DAOs that want to run validators as a community will be able to participate in these modules, potentially. Or, or the module might say that actually this is a module purpose, purposefully built for, like you said, like high class integrate uh, level operators that all operate using like SOC 2s and ISO certifications and are fully insured and stuff like that. So the modules will be able to come up with like different um, design decisions for which node operators can participate in those modules and how. And that's also something that's really, really important for third parties that might be looking to build uh, the modules because they can either add like their own um, kind of like spin on them or they might want to integrate them into like other networks somehow or, you know, empower the users or the operators in, in some other ways. Um, but it also allows for like this cross-pollination of, of operators between the different sets. So you might have an operator uh, just like any professional node operator that's in the current curated operator set. And then they might also want to run distributed validators, another module that's going to be possible. And the staking router will basically be responsible for making kind of like this risk adjusted allocation between these different modules. I think that's a, a key point there um, that I'd like to double click on and that, you know, you could see participants of the curated set also participating in the DVT and maybe more solo staker sets. Um, and I just want to get at kind of like the the benefits of that. And I think about, you know, the risks uh, for the steeth holders of, you know, opening up the the validator set to solo stakers is that, you know, you take on more risk that you, you know, could your, your steeth could be slashed, right? Because you have less institutional operators of these nodes. Um, but is there a way to de-risk this expansion by perhaps like clustering a, you know, a, a a node operator like Chorus One with a bunch of you know solo stakers, and that way, as you know, as long as the institutional you know uh, node uh, node operator is 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 running, then it can kind of protect, I guess, the other DV you know solo stakers in a cluster. That's that's a really really great question. Um, and so there's a very large segue here, obviously, to the kind of stuff that Oshin is working on in, in Oval. So I'll let him take that part, but. Um, I hope the professional node operators don't go and pretend that they're solo stakers. I'll get very mad if they do, and like I'll know because uh, it's my job to know. But um, the the idea is that yes, you should be able to use different combinations of of different operator types or classes to minimize either the risk uh, that a certain cluster and the validators that they run poses to the protocol, 
or the impact of something going wrong, right? And you can choose to either minimize both or one or the other and then find different ways to do that. And it's up to the designs of each module to figure out how to do that. And it can range from anything from like bonding requirements um, that might be very basic and linear if you're talking about like a completely permissionless solo um, module because that's the safest way to make something like that work to more exotic things where if it's like semi-permissioned or you have operators that are um, not necessarily KYCing themselves, but prove that their their identity to the extent that it's provable that they're not also another operator, right? Not necessarily like it's Joe in his basement in Montana, but that it's not, um, you know, Chorus One or something like that. Uh, and come up with like exotic non-linear uh, non bonding requirements, or maybe say that if you can prove that you provide on-chain insurance for all of the validators that you run, then you don't need a bond, but that, that insurance is available. Or like, and this is why we're talking about DVs, you cluster them together in um, DV clusters of different kinds of makeups. Uh, and I'll let Ashin talk about that. And because all of those can offer different, like um, technically risk adjusted ways to approach this problem. Yeah, so I'll, I'll pick up there, um, starting with the challenge of the totally permissionless one and the bonded one. And as Izzy alluded to, it's like, it's very hard to figure out if someone is actually two people and they're not actually just Sybil attacking your network. So if you're trying to, you know, only let max one operator into the solo cluster, you don't want them like, you know, getting 10 applications in, you can do things like bonds. But as you said, you, you end up looking at like, the data, you're trying to do statistical analysis, be like, hmm, they regularly have outages the same times as these other people, they, they might be related, but it's very hard to kind of prove that you have to kind of get quite subjective about it. Um, so the idea of starting with totally permissionless, we don't know who you are, so long as you put up a bond, it's probably fine, it's definitely gonna work. That's, you know, a, a bit on the like more extreme end. And we've been, you know, working with the Lido team on and off for more than a year, I think, at this point, and like kind of getting towards that like direction. And one of the things we looked at is what you've alluded to of mixing solo stakers with the professional node operator set. And I think we can talk about this, but just over the last few months, we've finished up some testing with about 40 um, node operators, only about 12 of them being from the professional like curated set, the other 30 or so being mostly solo stakers. And we put them into groups with half curated, half, you know, solo stakers. And the nice thing about doing half and half is if you need two thirds of them to agree to anything, you have quite a lot of comfort that, you know, at least some of the curated side agreed to it, or, you know, the curated side also don't have total control anymore. They need at least some, you know, solo stakers to get involved and agree to things so that when we talk about you know some of the earlier modules when you kind of go from you know we want dvs but maybe we're not you know putting this totally in, like putting an algorithm totally in charge it's let's have one with a mixture of curated and non-created will give them a certain amount of allocation let's see how that does and then you go fully solo staker and then you go fully solo staker and it's bonded and permissionless and we don't know anything about you and you can kind of work your way out that kind of decentralization curve. I think that's that's really interesting. And I, I also want to kind of poke at some of the, the different sorts of, um, I guess, the flexibility you have within each of these modules. Um, and I think about, you know, also on the fee level, you know, something like a, a protocol like like Maker, which is very closely intertwined with, with Lido um, and a big distribution channel for Lido. You know, could you see something, you know, more like a, a like a, a rev share, right? That is done through customized fees or something like a kickback 
for um, for maybe protocols that are power users or other distribution channels that that also you know want control of their own module, and they also want to see some of the economics of you know the steep that they are bringing in um, to the to the overall you know validator set. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the things that. Uh, was purposefully kind of included in the broad nature of the way that the modules are designed. So even like the, the total fee itself, uh, you know, like the top line fee, which is 10%, isn't set in stone technically, although practically, um, personally, at least, I think it makes sense. It, it's neither too high nor too low. Um, and I don't think it makes sense messing with that right now in the immediate future, but down the road um, as protocol economics change and obviously or hopefully, I guess, uh, and this is not a financial advice, but the value of ETH also probably changes. Um, the the 10% fee like might make sense to change it to something else. But within that, um, the share itself between what goes to the DAO, if any, what goes to node operators, and what goes to potential third parties that are also included in terms of making sure that this module um, runs well, or like you said, is, the, is a distribution channel. Um, there's a, a lot of different ways to approach this. And it can range from, for example, them getting a percentage of that that that, that fee split um, all the way to something like secondary collateral, right? So there's a lot of um, permissionless staking protocols that uh, I don't know if they offer the option, but so most right now like require a secondary collateral to ETH. Um, I, to, in my personal opinion, I think like ETH um, or at least the staking token itself, like the LST, uh, ST Ethan in Lido's case, is like the prime collateral um, and probably shouldn't be substituted for something like this. But from a complementary perspective, it might make sense uh, in certain cases for certain modules um, to add collateral. And for example, node operators that post collateral in the secondary token might be eligible for something like uh, increased reward share or, you know, it's it's akin to like staking that that token, whether it's a utility token or a governance token or something like that, um, and allowing module designers and creators to play with those kinds of like financial uh, aspects. I think a allows the modules to kind of be seen as like business cases on their own, so that we can find sustainable models for how do you create validator sets. But eventually, and this is um, to the point that you brought up that Hasu mentioned in the previous cast, the idea of developing a fee market. Uh, for uh, validator sets. And I think fee is perhaps like constrained, but like one more general market. So you can say that this module offers this, 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 and this, and that might be, you know, like fully KYC uh, operators or um, operators that run all of their validators like in, in green data centers that are not the cloud or something like that. And then eventually either the protocol um, or users themselves, although technically right now it is the protocol uh, because for the moment, we believe that like an opinionated proxy for for user decisions here ends up working a little bit better. Uh, like if you look at delegated proof of stake in general, it ends up very top heavy. So we're trying to ameliorate some of those um, kind of side effects by distributing stake in as equitable a manner and in terms of like prioritizing certain things for robustness that you mentioned earlier, Miles, like geographic uh, distribution, um, jurisdictional diversity, and and obviously like software and, and infrastructure variants as well. Um, and and eventually, if you allow these like modules to compete against each other, but perhaps within certain like bounds or limits, so that you don't drive uh, fees or or rates or rewards rate as like the most important thing, because then you will end up with um, like corner cutting and stuff like that. I think we'll be able to find 
um, that the design space for creating your own modules allows like more sustainable mechanisms to to be created. Izzy, I have a uh, it's I have a couple questions for you on that, which is that that idea that also introduced a sort of a local fee market for Lido, similar to how Ethereum has, I think, a very elegant fee market, frankly, is very interesting to me. I want to get a sense of, you know, what are the market forces that are going to shape fee markets within Lido? And what is governance ultimately going to be responsible for? Because I kind of see these two conflicting forces here where there's sort of a free market rate between people who want uh, access to a specific set of validators. And this could be sort of the Sriram idea of maybe there's a premium on the block space of more decentralized validator sets using DVT like Obol or SSV. But then on the other hand, um, I could also see governance, right? Trying to have its own, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of what is going to be determined by the free market, right? Versus what does Lido governance going to be responsible for? So can you give me like a sense of how you see that playing out? Yeah, to, to a certain extent, the free market is going to determine that. And IE that is Lido governance because like, anybody can go by LDO and, and have a hand in, uh, or have a say rather in, in determining that outcome. There is no um, decision on this, obviously, because like the DAO hasn't uh, voted on it. Right. I think, at least from my personal opinion, what's happening right now is that there's an exploratory phase. Um, we're trying, we being like the current set of contributors that are working on this, we're trying to determine what ends up with the right balance of sust sustainability um, and robustness, but at the same time also being like appeasing to uh, capital efficiency, right? You don't want to go too much in one direction. Uh, where you sacrifice capital efficiency to the extent that like you have you have ceilings on uh, the total amount of like supply that you can you can meet because that demand will end up going elsewhere um, and that those other parties might not have the same considerations or principles that you do. Um, and on the other hand, you also don't want to go too much in the other direction and make everything about competing on price. So I think the the protocol's job here, at, at least from my perspective, and like this is this is what I believe in espouse, is that, it needs to set up the right, let's say, risk-adjusted safeguards for what a sustainable validator set looks like in the future, and that hinges upon like the things that we talked about in terms of like what makes uh, a decentralized validator set, and how do you maintain credible neutrality uh, and and censorship resistance in the network. And if the DAO eventually um, sells on a protocol where users can choose specifically like which validators their their state goes to, it needs a balancing mechanism to prevent that, like, let's say, possible lopsided decision making from affecting the overall protocol. So if you make it so that like anybody can choose where their state goes to, as opposed to like how it is right now, it needs to be able to countermand the additional risk for doing that. So if at some point somebody comes with like gazillions of dollars, right, and says, I only want the stake to go to this one node operator, that might put the rest of the like protocols, like fungible tokens at risk. So the protocol itself should have safeguards um, that rebalance the stake in a way that makes that as difficult as possible to happen. I think that makes sense. And it, it, it touches on a theme that we've been talking about, you know, first that decentralization is offense um, with liquid staking protocols, but also governance minimization is offense. Um, and it, it, I, I think you're touching on a, a tricky balance there because if you really were to let, you know, put this decision in the hands of the user or maybe, you know, put this decision on the supply side where say like these modules bid with the lowest possible fee that they would take, right, to, to, for the, to get the deposits, to win the deposits, natural market forces just move this towards, you know, most of that stake going to the largest operators. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess, is it fair to say that, you know, 
while there's some, you know, whether it's MEB with PBS, you can build that into the protocol and, and basically, you know, ossify it completely. The, uh, it, and the parts of the, even the Lido contracts, you will be able to ossify at some point. But is it fair to say that maybe the, you know, monitoring the allocation of deposits is something that will, you know, never be able to be completely, you know, basically ossified or, 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 or left to the free market or the user's choices? Yeah, I, I mean, never is a big word. Um, I think that that eventually there. So there's research being done on this, and it's it's public. So like, I'm not saying anything secret. Um, we've uh, like a specific set of contributors have been working on this with another mind research team. We discuss it with node operators like almost every day, and with uh, other parties in the ecosystem like like Obol, um, and even with with other staking protocols. Right. The the difficulty here is trying to come up with. Um, a semi-autonomous mechanism, right? That like you don't want to keep touching this, and you don't want to like having to grease the wheels like every every couple months. Uh, that runs well enough, um, and that at the same time is not like let's say exploitable under uh, bad weather scenarios. And the latter part is what's really really difficult, especially with permissionless systems. So uh, stuff like DV is is amazing, and at some point, if distributed validators end up being as battle tested as, as we hope and we think that they will be, it wouldn't be surprising to me if most validators are run uh, in a distributed fashion. But you can't just say because a validator is distributed that I'm contending with uh, end parties now instead of one, right? Like four or three. Um, the permissionless nature of, of what we're trying to build eventually means that it's very possible that these four parties may be one um, and that it will be very, very difficult for a protocol, at least from a purely automated on-chain perspective to discern that they are it is one and not four or three or two. Um, and so to a certain extent, I think there may be uh, kind of like bumper guards that you have in like a bowling alley that might need to, you know, write the, the, the ball every now and then. Um, but the question is making sure that those are put far enough away that they uh, only have to come into play very, very um, seldomly and not in a way that can endanger the protocol. And one of the key ways of doing that um, and we're kind of going back to the question that you mentioned earlier is like this idea of dual governance. So dual governance is all about how do you address like this principal agent problem where the the protocol that is basically responsible for making certain decisions um, may or not make or is governed by actors that may or not have may not have exactly the same interests or at some point diverging interests um, with the the holders of the liquid staking token. So for example, in this specific case, like LDO holders versus STETH holders. So the, the idea of dual, dual governance is A, allowing for STETH holders to have a veto in the case that these incentives meaningfully diverge, um, but also a way to, let's say like meter the, the possible like worst case scenarios that can happen in a protocol, right? So it's not only important for people to be able to, to veto if something bad might happen or something that don't agree with might happen, but also to delay whatever needs to happen long enough so that the people don't agree with it can exit gracefully versus, you know, leading to a kind of situation where everybody's running for the exits, even if they might not need to, that it ends up having like unintended consequences down the line. Cause we're, we're talking about DeFi here, right? Um, right. There's no accounting for how people use uh, the tokens that are theirs um, in a completely permissionless system. And so you, you want to create systems that, um, make make it clear that like if if something bad might happen uh, or something that they don't agree with, they have adequate recourse basically to to say goodbye and do so in a way that doesn't put anything at risk.
Yeah. We could go down this this whole rabbit hole of, of dual governance. I, I have a couple couple more questions for you uh, on sort of the ossification of the protocol. And I want to actually lead into a a, uh, a restaking question because we're going to have Sri Ram on next week. But one one metaphor that has been, um, been Miles and I have been playing around with a lot this this season is is uh, actually like the App Store. And if you look at the development of the App Store, right, it actually kind of started out as this thing that wanted to be a little bit more permissionless. Uh, but ultimately, what Apple decided one is they wanted to give their users a better experience. And they started having like higher barriers to entry and requirements for developers because the ultimate uh, sort of market factor or market uh, determinant for them was wanting to provide a good experience. And Izzy, that's the question that I want to ask you and open it up to Ashin as well. Is, just try to get a sense of like how permissionless can we get here? Uh, because at a certain point, if we just let anyone become a validator, right? If the if the staking router was to become so permissionless <laughs> that that anyone could kind of do anything, then you could risk some adverse consequence for let's say Steve holders, right? If you had irresponsible validators who risk getting slashed, and then you know the way that the pool is currently structured, everyone would sort of get punished for that. So that's my sort of question for you: is how permissionless can we ultimately get here? Um, and where does the line sort of exist? So ultimately, uh, and we're talking about like, a, I don't know, four to six year horizon from now, I think we can yeah. get quite permissionless. Until then, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, some of the core problems to contend with in the space are obviously like, like Sybil attacks, which we mentioned earlier. Um, the idea of like, how do, how do you fight these when they happen or at least minimize their impact when they do because that, that's mm -hmm. the most likely scenario that that they'll happen and then you just want to make sure that the protocol is robust enough to withstand them um, when they do and um the the second aspect is and and this kind of goes to the whole idea of building like on-chain identity and not in the kyc sense but in the sense that like anybody can participate to the extent that we can make sure that they're not also somebody else so there's a lot of data that you you would need to bring either from on-chain or like aside the chain on-chain. So um, for example, like we, we talk about things that happen on-chain, right? But the gossip network itself itself is not on-chain. Um, so validators are not like aware of the physical location of, of other machines that they're talking to. Those things to a certain extent will always need some sort of like proxy for like meat space. Um, and right now that proxy, uh, is governance. Eventually mm -hmm. when there are, are mechanisms to bring enough of that data on chain so that, um, these protocols can reason about it in a sufficient manner, it doesn't need to be foolproof. Um, but it does need to, you know, cover like 90% of cases. Um, then we will be able to reach systems that are like either semi-autonomous or almost fully autonomous with very, very few safeguards or let's say configuration parameters being tuned by something less like a, a governance mechanism, I would say, and more like caretakers. Got it. Um, and, oh, sorry, Rasheen. Well, the one thing I was going to add to that, which is I think permissionless is quite achievable, but I think the one that I'm more skeptical of is market forces driving like risk parameters and stuff and being like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, we can just look at, you know, redemptions and we can look at people's like what they want and assume that there's kind of some natural place to, like put risk and stuff i think what a lot of times is very hard to appreciate is how black swan staking is in that like when something bad happens it'll be you know non-linearly worse than anything that's come before there's not going to be some data of 
oh yeah, you know, they started to decline in performance. So automatically we reduced their like risk and their tolerance. It's probably going to be everything was fine until it was unbelievably not fine. Um, so you can still do permissionless, but I don't think there'll be like a market price of like finding a clearing price that is the price of risk, or at least not, not an accurate one, I think. Yeah, I, Ashim, that's such a good point. And one, one, maybe this is a, you know, we can end on this and it'll be a lead into our, our next interview is the possibility of a big theme that we're exploring this season is sort of the intersection in between something like liquid staking and restaking. And frankly, the first thing that sort of comes to mind that is at the same time, very interesting, but I could also see it being very problematic is something like a restaking module within the staking router on Lido. And I just have a lot of questions about how that would mechanically work. For instance, if the middleware that, um, that you know, restakers end up running get tokens that are denominated in not ETH, I mean, how would frankly something even like that work? But then also the, the bigger question of you can imagine right now it's the bear market and everyone's being very, you know, frankly, rational and, uh, you know, concerned with things like safety. But we know that doesn't happen in bull markets as well. And you can imagine this negative reinforcing cycle in between, let's say, a Lido clone and an Eigenlayer clone that aren't as responsible and acting in as good faith, where they just layer up on a whole bunch of different risks that they end up taking. They drag the, you know, the weighted APY up and people end up going into, uh, you know, sort of much less safe conditions. So maybe if we could take both of those at each time, I would love to get your sense of if a restaking module would be possible and how would that work if the tokens were, you know, if the rewards were denominated in something other than, than ETH. And then maybe we could talk about that, that last point. I think the thing I'd like to hear from Izzy is how a liquid staking token might stay fungible while people want to start doing different things. Yeah. Like I know I was listening to the Hasu podcast yesterday and he was like very insistent there will only be one derivative. It'll be like uniform and everyone's going to use it. But how does that work if there is, you know, demand for different modules and some people want the kind of risk averse one, some people want the restaking one. How, how, yeah, how do you blend risk profiles, I guess? So there's a bunch of different schools of thought on this and I would say that there is no consensus uh, right now. Um, my, the, the way that I approach this is that if you want things like that, you, it's better to build them on top of STETH rather than to build them alongside STETH. Um, uh, and like Eigenlayer basically does this already, right? Well, it allows you to take your STETH or your RETH and, and deposit it into a contract. Um, not much is happening to it yet, but, it, you know, eventually the idea is that, that it will. So to a certain extent, the exposure that STETH, uh, at least exogenously might have to something like restaking is unbounded. Um, however, it's probably going to be more appealing if there is some sort of core level, um, integration, let's say be between the two, right? It might give you better APY. It might give you more granular control over the validators, which you need in order to have like a good feedback loop over liens of collateral. Otherwise, you know, things might get like really, really out of hand if you go really high up, the, up the restaking stack. Um, and that in itself might take the form of uh, a staking router module. And then you basically, at least in, in the current way that staking router works, rely on the DAO to put like appropriate risk safeguards around that, right? So one is the thresholds to uh, regarding how much stake might be allocated to that module. And two is what the expectations would be for that specific module with regards to um, like risk mitigation or, or risk management options. So. It might say that like for every validator that is spun up um, in this module, 
X amount of whatever you want to, whatever you want to denominate that in. It might be in ETH rewards, it might be in ETH, or it might be in um, these kind of like secondary tokens that end up being accrued, like you said, Mike, uh, gets sent towards like paying for insurance for these validators, something like that. Um, and so I, I think that also is the most reasonable way to address the other question that you have is, uh, sorry, that you had Ashin, which is how do you not mess with fungibility? Like fungibility for me is the most important thing um, for STETH, uh, fungibility and, and liquidity, and they kind of go hand in hand. So if you eventually add modules that either allow you to take more risk um, than other modules do, or for example, like specifically stake with specific operators or in order to, you know, have a certain, certain qualities of validators, I think they end up doing the same thing, which is that it, it can, it can, if not managed properly, like end up creating like different classes of, of, of overall risk, which if they get too big contra the rest of the stake, um, could threaten like the entire protocol. The protocol's job and governance's job is to a, not let that happen. So you have to put the appropriate safeguards in place um, from a metering perspective and from a configuration perspective. And then you also have to make sure that the actual business logic um, within these modules appropriately meters the, the possible negative effects of something going wrong. So it might even be something like these need to be fully insured or they need to post collateral or um, it's opt-in, but only a certain amount of stake can opt into this and if you don't get in you don't get in so like there's a lot of kind of um like accusations you know that are made in terms of oh if this staking protocol is too big like you know they're gonna mess with like block, block proposal slots and they're gonna construct mev blocks um vertically and all of this stuff and i i've actually never seen any proposal in lido for for this to happen like either on governance or uh amongst like other people that i've talked to so like there's a lot of things that can happen uh, there's a lot of things that could happen, could have happened in terms of like attacks of, of Ethereum in the past, uh, but you ended up with them like not materializing because of, let's say like the culture and and the quality of people that are associated with this network, like on average and at large. So, if we make sure that the culture and the ethos is is there to not engage in like the most like degen, let's say, um, kind of practices and inducing rewards, but follow a path of like reasonable sustainability but at the same time balancing for capital efficiency um i think that there's there's a path forward there that doesn't end up endangering uh the water protocol izzy let me just uh i i i want to make sure i'm not focusing on this too much and i also just for the audience i want to highlight you know this idea of being fungible so the reason why this is so important eigenlayer actually addresses this in their in their white paper where they explicitly say that we have no plans to issue a token because positions in eigenlayer, you're, you know, you're going to be running different types of middleware with different risk and return profiles associated with. So there's not, you know, you can't make it, it's not fungible like it is with Steve and ETH. Uh, that said, there actually is a precedent in finance for creating liquid fungible positions for less fungible, like actually bond ETFs would be a really good example of that. So we do know that that does, there is at least some pretty large precedent actually in TradFi for it. And the question that I that I have for you is I've, I've pulled up here again, Adrian's sort of uh, Steve assets and liabilities, their, their balance sheet. And if this was a bank looking over at the right, instead of on the assets part of their balance sheet, instead of, you know, professional node operators, small groups, DAOs, it would be uh, treasuries would be a group of assets that you'd have. Uh, commercial real estate would be a group of assets that you have small business loans, whatever it is, they'd sort of divide up their, their different assets. And, um, you know, Steve would be replaced by deposits. The, 
the mechanism, you know, my understanding of the mechanism for how Lido pays out to, pays out its rewards is there's an Oracle, it checks the balance of ETH that's in the, the total validator set. Uh, and then Steve gets minted and Steve uh, will act like the, it gets rebased to, to holders, but then it also gets, um, you know, new Steve shares, you know, which essentially act as claims on the pool, get minted to the, both the treasury and node operators. So my question just from a mechanical standpoint and what the pool of assets would look like is if you had these uh, validators that were opting into additional hardware and receiving rewards, an Oracle would check that and then, but you still wouldn't be capable of minting anything other than Steve. So ultimately the balance, the the pool, right, of different things would encompass other uh, tokens in there, right? And you'd still just get paid out with Steve and suddenly Steve would represent a claim on not just ETH in a pool, but mostly ETH plus some other tokens, or would you shift the way that the, you see what I'm saying is, is, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I understand the question. So there's no, there's no answer to this. Um, got it. Got it. In, in, in terms of like, there's nothing that has been set in stone. These are obviously like things that we're thinking about. Um, my intuition here is that, so, so first of all, the call out that you're making is correct in the current curated operator uh, registry node operators, uh, are paid daily basically, or receive their, their, their rewards fees daily. And it is pro rata based on how many validators they run as a total number of, uh, compared to the total number of validators run by the protocol. So node operators do not make more or less based on their, like their daily performance. Um, however, with staking router, this can be determined at the module level. So if some modules want to pay operators that are performing better, more than they, than they pay operators that don't perform as well, they can, uh, but it's up to the module to figure out the logic there. Now that logic might require um, certain upgrades to like the main Oracle, or it might work with like a satellite Oracle. It's up to the module to figure out how to do that. On a grander scale, like when we're talking about, you know, this, this 46 years down the line, um, there are a lot of different things that I think need to, need to be considered in terms of like, you know, how you were talking about like the that the total risk of like a, a balance sheet, which might be yeah. treasuries or commodities or something like that. And it's only not, a, it's not only about like, um, rewards adjusted returns, but also in terms of what is the contribution to the robustness of the protocol of all of these different modules. So a solo staking module, which might make a little bit less, less money in terms of rewards rate than like a module run by uh, fully professional stakers. Although with things like DVs, like that might not even be the case anymore might contribute more to the robustness of the protocol than you know the the equivalent amount of validators run by professionals would be so to a certain extent the protocol should value that higher than you know on a per validator basis than something that's from the curated operator registry and these kinds of like you can call it risk adjusted calculations right but it's really about the sustainability of the protocol are going to be core in terms of figuring out what, what the right allocations are. So when we talk about risk uh, restaking, the same kind of logic applies there. If the rewards that these validators are getting um, might be denoted in something other than ETH, there's like a couple of ways to approach it. One is that they actually um, don't relate to the minting of SDETH at all, and it ignores those rewards, and they are represented in another way. So it might be another token, or it might be something that you can claim um, by holding as to ETH, uh, but not actually rebased in the full value of the token, right? So you can like assume that their value is, is zero in terms of like what's the contraposition um, on the on the liability side for the protocol, 
Uh, or you can do other things like instantly sell them for ETH and then therefore and restake it. And then then that works. Um, I think different modules will take different approaches to this uh, and then we'll figure that out. So that's the other cool thing about like the module based approach. Maybe you don't sell them for ETH. Maybe you sell them for a token of a project that wants to do this. And then that's a, that is a way for like that, a, that token to accrue some value. Got it. Uh, fascinating questions to ponder. And thanks for, I know a lot of this stuff is frankly, it's still being written and discussed, but it's just, it's always interesting to consider and we'll have to poke a little bit of that at a uh, Sri Ram next, next episode. Uh, Izzy and Ashin, guys, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. This has given Miles and I a, a ton to think about. If folks want to find out more about you or follow you or, or, uh, either reach out, maybe Ashin from, a you know, or interested in, uh, you know, validating or machine or uh easy sorry want to, want to find out more about lido i think folks know about it pretty well what's the best way to follow you yeah i'll start there so i think you can find us on twitter at obol network and the website is obol.tech o-b-o-l.tech and yeah the thing i would encourage people to do particularly if they are a home staker or someone considering staking is to give a try on the launch pad try and run something on girly you know set up a squad with your friends give it a try because it sounds like lido might have some opening for Node operators in the foreseeable future. Yeah, actually, the, there's an opening for some node operators right now. Uh, today's actually the the last day for for people who are interested to apply uh, for the Wave Five onboarding. So this is for the, the curated operator module. You can find uh, more information about that on the Lido forum. So research.lido.fi. Um, there's already over a hundred applications. So uh, our team is going to be insanely busy once we get back from ETC. Uh, we will be at ETCC. There will be a Lido booth. Uh, if you're in Paris, come find us. Uh, I'll, I'll try to make sure that uh, I get you some merch if you say that I listen to you on the bell curve. Um, you can find us, of course, on, on Twitter at Lido Finance uh, and myself at ISDRSP, uh, Isidoro Spasatis. That's my name. Um, and in general, there's like it, this is a really, really exciting time for me. Um, all of the stuff that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years in terms of how do we create sustainable validator sets is, is like the culmination of that is the staking router and the first couple of modules that are being developed. I'm super excited to be exploring the, the solution space here with teams like uh, Obol um, and others. And I think the next uh, 12 to 18 months are really, really going to be pivotal in terms of showing not only how important it is to build systems that allow for like inclusivity, um, but also the idea that if you create like design spaces for something, um, you encourage other people to help you find solutions as opposed to try and come up with, with everything on your own. Super. And, and super. I think uh, like, honestly, both light of and, and especially like what Obel is doing, uh, by creating middleware and, and not necessarily like a prescriptive way to do things is, is examples of the same thing. Guys, this was, uh, just such a great episode. Thank you so much. I, Miles and I keep saying we got to make these shorter, but how, you know, what, what could we have cut out here? This was just such great conversation. So uh, we really appreciate both your time and, uh, you know, we'll have to do it again soon. All right, Miles, what a great episode that was. I knew we were biting off quite a bit with DVT plus staking router and, and we didn't even get to dual governance, which is, you know, <laughs> I think, again, the mark of a good episode. Uh, we're being very ambitious with the the planning sheets for, for each one of these shows, but Man, there's just so much to dig yeah. into there. I thought that was one of my my favorite episodes of Yeah, couldn't agree show. more. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, came out of it extremely excited about, you know, the potential of this staking router. Um, and and have a very good idea of how this intersects with 
you know, DVT and, and the importance of solo staking and how, you know, Lido is really trying to align itself with what is beneficial for Ethereum, the protocol. Um, so we yeah, can, yeah, let's kick off from there. So, you know, starting off with solo staking DVT, DVT is not something that I had necessarily heard of that much, even six, nine months ago, I feel like incredibly, increasingly very smart people are working on solving this problem, whether that's Obol or SSV or, or whoever. And one, I think part of the reason we didn't really talk about this, why uh, solo or self stakers are so important is if you look at the scaling architecture of rollups and L2s, I sort of have this kind of pet thesis that uh, as, these rollups are going to be using a, as a centralized sequencer for a long time, if not indefinitely. At the very least, it's a much thornier problem, right, than, than folks initially gave it credit for. So I think the importance of a very credibly neutral, decentralized base layer at Ethereum is probably even more important today than it has been in the past. So technologies and mechanisms and creating a sort of incentive base for solo staking through DVT, I just, I just want to underscore how important that is in the current zeitgeist and moment. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I didn't actually think about it from the sense of, you know, the the makeup of these rollups is is reinforcing the importance of having a good chunk of the validator set be these independent solo stakers that, you know, can are very hard to censor from any sort of, yeah. uh, you know, government or, or another organization. Yeah. And it was encouraging in talking to Ashin. I think the the part of that conversation that stood out to me you know, I won't go back and talk about the, the mechanism for how it works today, but when we asked him about tomorrow and timeline, and I think the question that you and I were really interested in driving towards here was, what is the timeline for reducing the hardware requirements here to something where you could imagine, you know, being a solo validator using just your cell phone? And he said, it might not even take years. So that, that to me was a, a very impressive or a very interesting yeah. kind of takeaway, got me excited. No, 100%. Because, you know, I think the current requirements associated with this, even once you lower the capital requirements from 32 ETH to, you know, say four ETH, um, there's still kind of a ceiling of in terms of the amount of people in the world that are one, you know, motivated to run a DV validator have, you know, the technical chops to do so. Um, and I think lowering those barriers uh, is, is extremely important to actually opening this up to a broader population. And yeah, I was, I was surprised. I was thinking it would be, you know, in the order of, of five years before we could get something like this to just run on your phone in the background. Right. Um, or, or just even have like very, very flexible options here. Um, and then once you, you know, lower these hardware and, and capital requirements as, as much as you possibly can, it just becomes a question of, okay, how do you, you know, frame running a DV validator in a way that that is attractive to folks who, you know, may not have been interested in staking in the beginning or may not be crypto native. Um, and, you know, I think there's still some open questions there, but at the very least, this addresses all of the problems of, you know, for folks that um, are already interested in staking and, and interested, you know, in pushing forward the decentralization of the network. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know, we talked about segueing into the staking router. I mean, even before that, we talked a lot about alignment and the closer you are to core protocol of or that sort of base layer infrastructure of Ethereum, the more aligned you want to be with Ethereum. So I think it makes a lot of sense for not only Lido, but the Rocket Pool is probably the, you know, the most 
extreme example of this being extremely aligned with sentiment of Ethereum. There's actually a interestingly, I'm not sure if you caught there was a there was a vote, I think, in Rocket Pool governance as to whether or not to self-limit. Uh, it was very similar to the Lido vote that happened in May of last year. Very different answer. That it was kind of an overwhelming consensus that we should self-limit. The caveat that I will say there is that, you know, in the uh, immortal words of 50 Cent, it's hard to hard to hate it from outside the club. You can't even get in. You know, it's very different uh, saying you're going to self-limit with you know seven percent of stake versus 30 or something like that. So, yeah. but it is just it's indicative of this alignment sort of issue. And I think Lido is doing. My, my sense is that Lido is a team of true believers in, in a lot of this stuff. But I want to get into the the discussion that we had around the staking router was, I think, extremely interesting, I would say. I kind of came away from this conversation very actively excited about it. And I asked, I've got a bunch of different questions I could ask here. But yeah, what were some of your high-level thoughts from that part of the conversation? Yeah, so I think in general, the staking router um, is allowing Lido to serve more dif different sets of users um, beyond just this initial, you know, kind of core user persona of somebody that wants to delegate the hardware responsibilities and delegate, you know, um, running these these validators to to a you know a curated set of professional node operators. So it opens up, you know, the uh, a customer segment of you know these solo stakers um, and DVT stakers, um, but it also opens up customer segments or, or at least improves, you know. The relationship with other customer segments and distribution channels like DAOs themselves, um, you know, or even, you know, maybe a subset of the curated set that is just highly, you know, institutional and, and compliant, right? Um, and I think it's it's really fascinating just how much flexibility that they have kind of left and, and design space that they have left to the community to, to create these modules, um, you know, things like custom fee parameters um, or custom allocation, you know, parameters, right? You have the ability to just mirror how the curated set is, you know, how deposits are allocated across the curated set, or you could do something very interesting, you know, like sending more deposits to the highest performing validators um, or, you know, fees that kick back to a protocol or something like that. And so, it almost reminds me a little bit of Uni V4 um, in that, you know, it's-, it's I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, opening up I was the, say the same thing. community, right? Um, and I think it, it it opens up a path, right, for, for Lido to, to improve its alignment with the with the community, get everybody comfortable, you know, with, with its growth and its, its market share, essentially. Um, you know, well, also, you know, in a, in a more greedy or, I don't know, greedy is not the right way, but like it- it's in their financial incentives to do this, right? Because they're actually, it's becoming a better product. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there and uh, would love to hear your, your reactions as well. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up V4. I saw a direct comparison to that. And I think it's, there's sort of this converging, this converging set of architectures. We actually talked about this and it kind of has to do with uh, minimizing the surface area of uh, you know, of your product and minimizing governance. And this was a key question we actually asked in season two of this show, which is there's sort of a more vertically integrated approach where you do a whole bunch more things and governance has access to all of that, or you can choose to be a, a thinner layer, so to speak, and you minimize the amount that you do, but you also minimize the amount that, um, that you govern. And that makes it more uh, solid to build a foundation on. And I think you're starting to see, I think Uniswap V4 was a great, example of that. I think Lido is clearly heading in that direction with the staking router. I think you'll, we, we're talking to Sriram next week. I think he'll probably say something very similar 
when it comes to eigenlayer. So you're starting to see this sort of um, these two sets of designs play out. Yeah, I, think it's I would say I would call it the difference with Uni V4 versus versus Lido V2 in, in the staking router is that you know with Uniswap users have the ability to choose which you know version of Uni V4 they want, right? Which which version with XYZ hooks and you know characteristics they want to use, right? And Lido could do the same thing. Lido could say, all right, let's just let the users decide which, you know, module they want to deposit their stake to, right? And I think the difference there is that with liquid staking protocols, again, that would just, it, there needs to be a level of control, one, to protect the users, and two, to basically align with the health of the network. Because you could see a situation mm -hmm. where it, the choice, you know, Gov, gov minimization is great, right? That's the goal. But if you let that choice, you know, sit with the users completely, then I think it's fair to say that, you know, and based off of what we see in delegated proof of stake systems, most users would prefer to, you know, delegate their stake to the most safe, you know, largest validators, right? Um, and so this kind of push pull tension, right? Where you want to minimize the surface area of governance as much as possible. But you also need to basically monitor the allocation of deposits in a way to make sure that you're you're also, you know, driving forward the health of like Ethereum, the network itself, right? Because the staking router would be kind of, you know, I guess the impact of the staking router would be would be mitigated if, um, you know, less than one percent of deposits were actually going towards these permissionless validators, right? That wouldn't that wouldn't really actually decentralize Lido or wouldn't help Lido decentralize in the way that they want to. Um, so this level of curation I that's think that's, there is interesting. I think it's an unsaid assumption that many would like to be true, but I could see it going in the exact opposite direction that left to market forces, many protocols would prefer to be validated by professional services as opposed to self or solo stakers. Right. I think that's that. Now, I think DVT has the... You know, to your point about maybe a professional, you know, uh, validator like Chorus One runs a part of that DVT cluster, and then there are you know multiple different so, uh, self stakers that sort of become a part of that group. I think that could mitigate that, but I, I do think as as it stands right now, without DVT, I, I do think most protocols would be prefer to be validated by uh, professionals who will wake up in the or not only you don't have to worry about them waking up in the middle of the night; they'll have teams that just do that. So. I could see, I could easily see market forces going the other way and putting a, a discount on solo stakers as opposed to a premium. So I think that's probably a, you know, that's maybe not a popular thing to say, but I think there's definitely the possibility that that ends up happening. And then you will have to, you know, and that then it will be interesting to see the impact that Lido governance has on, you know, through allocation to different modules of stakers versus just straight up market forces. And it could be an issue for them if, you know, market forces actually end up prioritizing a more professional curated set of validators as opposed to the solo guys. But right, one question right. that I had for you, Miles, is yeah. you made a really great point with Maker, frankly, being a potential distribution channel yeah. for, for something like Lido. Can you, can you un explain yeah. a little bit and unpack that a bit more? Because I think that's a, an under-discussed point. For yeah, the absolutely. So, you know, I think the general idea is that, you know, folks could deposit ETH as, uh, as collateral to Maker and Maker, you know, in, in their balance sheet manage management would deposit that into Lido and, um, you know, to earn yield on it, essentially. 
And let's just say that Maker or another protocol is so large of a distribution channel that it, you know, accounts for say like five to 10 to 20% of all circulating Steeth out there. At that point, you know, that protocol might be motivated to, you know, open up a competing liquid staking uh, offering, right? So that they can capture all of the yield and they don't need to share any of the yield with Lido anymore, um, given that, you know, it could be a substantial amount of revenue. Um, but what the staking router enables is to basically, you know, share some of this revenue or you basically customize the fees to kick back some of the revenue to the distribution channel. Um, and this isn't that different than some of the growth hacks that Lido has used in the past um, with uh, basically, you know, rewarding distribution channels like Ledger or other whitelisted, um, uh, you know, wallets or on-ramps with some sort of LDO rewards. But this is a much cleaner way to do it, right? And so you could, you could basically mitigate this risk of, of competitors like you've, we've already seen with Frax, right? Who want to, who say, we've got all this ETH sitting around. Why don't we just, you know, create our own liquid staking protocol to internalize that yield? Um, and I think that this offers a really elegant solution to sort of, you know, let those, these relationships grow together. Um, and yeah, that, that was just one immediate thing that came to mind. Who knows how prevalent that will actually end up being, you know, with, with the, with the growth of the staking router, but, um, that's definitely, definitely interesting. It's an interesting question because what it made, what it ultimately made me think is, you know, if you look at that diagram of the, the asset side of Steeth, then you kind of see five or six different modules and then you know, maybe there'll be some more than that in the future. There is another future where there are actually thousands of different modules. And yeah. ultimately, a lot of those end up being individualized modules for, say, Maker or Ave or something like that, which would be, frankly, pretty interesting. And I think that would be an alternate way of playing out from the other the other uh, solution that you could do is vertical integration. And that's sort of the approach that Frax is taking. And frankly, you're starting to see vertical integration within um, some of the major DeFi protocols like Maker, Curve, and Ave are all converging on very similar business models. Yeah. And they have decided to go in the opposite route of something like, like Hasu would advocate, which is to just stay in your lane, minimize governance, you know, maximize one, uh, you know, mini minimize your managerial surface area. They're doing the opposite. They're vertically integrating and they're maximizing, trying to take on a whole bunch of more complexity and risk. And yeah, I well, am not smart enough to know how that's going to play out, but it's interesting to see very different approaches being tried. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I believe like just going back to that maker example, they could say maker really cares about the decentralization of the L1, right? They could also specify that the only valid the validators in their module will all be DVD or solo stakers, right? Um, they can basically curate who the validators are, what kind of validators they are, what the fee preferences are. Um, yeah, so the flexibility adds, you know, it's a lot of a lot of possibilities here. Um, and it's yeah, I, exciting. it would be it would also be interesting. Frankly, I, I'm just not creative enough to ask some of these questions, but I do remember. It, it, you might be surprised about what these protocols end up caring about. So I don't know if you remember, there were a slate of proposals for the PSM a little while ago to invest some of that USDC. And there were these sort of competing proposals from Coinbase and CoinShares. And the the idea was to reinvest and, and earn higher yield on that USDC. And they ultimately ended up going with Coinbase, even though the amount of yield that was offered was lower. And the reason was, is because they could withdraw very quickly. Remember the function of the PSM is to be a stability mechanism in case 
you know, there's some like de-pegging event, you're supposed to be able to defend the peg. Uh, whereas the coin shares proposal, even though it was actually a more traditional risk management framework and they were going to reinvest in bonds, you actually had to move from crypto into TradFi. So the withdrawal time took too long to the yeah. fact that it was punitive. So there might be these weird parameters that are outside just how decentralized is the validator set and what are the fees there there will there will be other technical reasons that end up you know determining these modules yeah no i think there's it will be very interesting to see exactly what modules you know in the same way as we're very interested to see what people do with uni v4 where you know there's a lot to look forward to and in, in terms of you know what people can do with the with the staking uh router and and the modules that they create yeah I, I want to give listeners, I want to end this by talking about the restaking module, which I thought was frankly super interesting. And I wish we had more time at the end of our discussion to dig into that. I did want to, we initially planned this episode to be uh, at least 25% focused on dual governance. And we only briefly mentioned it. And I want to at least give listeners an overview of how that's going to work and why that's why that exists. Um, I, I know Izzy talked about it a little bit, but it's this idea of you can imagine if, let's say, in a future state where Lido ends up winning seventy percent of, uh, you know, seventy percent of validators are are within Lido, then you could see the co-opting of ETH's sort of uh, governance and how staking works by a very small set of Lido holders, um, and often to, and you, there could be a um, principal agent problem existing in between the the wants of stakers and the holders of Lido the token. So what the the solution was to give uh, uh, Steve holders actually the ability to veto. And the mechanics are, are pretty interesting. There's basically a contract where after a certain number of uh, amount of Steve is deposited into this sort of escrow contract that there is a, a voting period and you can vote down any of the uh, like a Lido proposal or yeah. something like that. Um, the, the other the other thing to mention is that, you know, Lido is not purely an Ethereum protocol. You can also, you know, it's expanded at one point. It was on uh, Terra Luna, right? There is Lido on uh, Solana. So it's kind of a supranational uh, DAO entity uh, as opposed to a national entity like Ethereum, to use an imperfect analogy. So uh, it, again, it's just like if you want to be a huge nerd and go down the rabbit hole, we can link something in the, the show notes, which is the proposal that Sam Cozen wrote that um, you, know, you can take a look at. But I did, I did just want to say that was another key part of decentralizing the governance and uh, that, yeah. that we just didn't have time to get I mean, into in the show. That's like directly addressing the principal agent problem, right? Um, Correct. And, you know, I'm trying to pick like an analogy here, but, you know, in the absence of there being actual like, you know, uh, top-down regulation and, and people monitoring, you know, like you would see in the traditional financial system, you know, you need to give the holders or, or the users of these assets, the depositors, some ability to veto things that are truly, truly malicious and, and very frankly, like unrealistic, I think. Um, but still that level of comfort that it is possible is what is the big growth unlock that gets the you know rest of the community comfortable. Um, and so I do think that, you know, the introduction of of the staking router and, and specifically permissionless pool uh, sets or solo staker sets, um, along with you know coupled with the dual governance, is is really you know the core of this response that Lido is 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 putting forward to these concerns in the self limiting debate. Yeah, so we'll link the the actual forum discussion in the show notes, and if anyone wants to nerd out about that, that's that's probably the best place to do it. 
Although it has been a little while since that was proposed, so there might be some updates in terms of how Sam or the Lido team is thinking about it. I'm not 100% sure. I want I wanted to end by discussing the restaking module, the, the possibility of a restaking module. That was, I thought, one of the most interesting parts of the whole discussion. I'd be curious, Miles, like what did you find yourself wondering or thinking about when we were asking yeah. about that? You know, I think this is probably the edge of like right at the cusp of what becomes uh, something that could get voted down because it's too complex by, by the, by the light out community. Because I, uh, I, I guess my initial sense is this kind of fundamentally changes the product. You could look at it that way, um, or you could look at it in the way of, you know, well, we are managing risk already across all these different validator sets. And this is just, you know, a little bit more risk than those other validator sets, but nothing we can't manage, right? Um, but it does introduce complexity and in sort of, you know, the way that you would claim non, you know, steeth or non-native staking rewards um, and, and things like that. And so I, my sense is that it's something that is possible, but, um, you know, I, I think it's a lower priority for, you know, as it relates to like, Lido's core objectives for the next couple of years. Um, I, I think they're, they, they would almost, it, it, I got the sense that they, that they would almost prefer to, you know, delegate the choice of um, whether or not Steve holders want to restake to the users themselves. Um, and, you know, that's, that's possible right now since Steve has been onboarded as a, um, as an LST for, for Eigenlayer. And I'm sure, you know, there will be Eigenlayer competitors that will accept Steve since it's the largest, you know, a liquid staking capital base. Um, and so, yeah, I came out with the impression that yes, it's possible, but you know, it's not something that is a super, I, I don't know, high priority, but we will see, right. You know, as you mentioned, this is bear market and folks have, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, care a lot of more about risk management at this point and a lot less about yield. Um, and so we'll see how much that changes over time. And, and I think you'll, at the very least, it will be a very spicy discussion if and when it's introduced. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. I think it is, I do fall fall out on probably the Hasu perspective here, which is that, yeah, there's, yeah, vertical integration, if it ever gets explored, should be much later in the protocol's life cycle. I, I think right now they should uh, try to minimize uh, risk and complexity. And I think this would be definitely taking that on. That said, I, I view something like this, even if it's not Lido and Eigenlayer, as probably inevitable. And yeah, I, agree. I think there's a rich history of, we, we've talked about, you know, the example would be bond ETFs. So that is actually, if any readers of Matt Levine out there, <laughs> he's one of the, the, the kings outside of Byron Gilliam. He's better. But, uh, you know, he has this trope, which is people are worried about bond market liquidity. And it's actually very simple, similar to this, which is there's one bond ETF, but it actually represents many thousands of individual bonds, each one of which has their own idiosyncratic risk profile, but it trades as one liquid thing. And it's actually worked kind of well. Another example would be, this is going to sound dramatic, but it's a, it's a very similar example of like CDOs or CLOs during the housing crisis where you actually had one sort of liquid instrument, but it it was packaged about, it was a bunch of mortgages that ended up getting packaged in there. And, you know, there was an idea that if you diversified enough, it wasn't really that risky. And you can see how after a period of time, 
people might not worry about that. It's been working for a couple of years. We haven't had a problem yet. And I, I think the, the most likely outcome here is that it's not Eigenlayer and Lido that end up integrating like this, but, but some other, you know, restaking, restaking, it's highly unlikely to me that Eigenlayer is going to be the only restaking protocol that exists out there. There'll probably be other flavors of it launched. Maybe, you know, one that won't be so concerned with the fungibility of positions and the, the denomination of the rewards and, yeah, I think I think that's probably what ends. Yeah, up. yeah. I guess my point is, like, I think Lido of all of all LST providers that exist today or or, or come along tomorrow uh, is probably the least motivated to do this, given their current you know market position and really they're you know they're trying to reduce complexity, right? They're trying to grow alignment with the L1 um, and introducing something like this. I think you know just. I could see it much more realistically coming from a competitor that is trying to capture market share from a much, you know, uh, a much lower position, right? And in doing so by offering outsized yield compared to, uh, you know, the safer incumbents like Lido. That's, I I completely agree with that sentiment. I, I would just say a couple of, but you can see how these things shift and change over time, right? I mean, yeah, even within crypto, maybe a more, relevant example would be we used to one of the big advantages that people used to tout was synchronous composability or atomic composability and now it's like yeah async's probably good enough you know, <laughs> and yeah, there is this uh this idea of you being at the mercy of your stupidest competitor i'm not sure if you yeah. if you've heard that yeah. uh but kind of a, a an example of that might be a competition that played out in between Celsius and BlockFi. I'll let you, you know, assume who was the stupider competitor and who is at the mercy of who. But I, I think you sort of see the, the my, my point is that it's just very hard to resist these things in the moment. I think that's the the point that I'm trying to make. And I, I would, um, you know, what do I know? I mean, people who work at Lido or the, you know, contribute to the DAO have been thinking about these issues for so much longer than than I have. But I would just say it's probably a good thing to not get involved with, even as time as it. <laughs> Might be. Yeah, I think that's fair. Remember in the first episode of season three, Sonny introduced this idea, this sort of uh, the idea that being an app chain and permissionless was an oxymoron. I thought I've thought about that quite a bit since he introduced that idea. And I've been thinking about it more and more. And, uh, you know, we talked about the app store analogy here, but I do think that this is something that protocols that are permissionless, you know, there's probably some logical limit to how permissionless you really want to be while providing a good product for your end users. I think that's an in, a very interesting tension to explore. And for something like a, a staking pool like Lido, I'd imagine that there's some amount of monitoring of validators or node operations that you always have to do. You know, we talked about, we didn't bring it up on this episode, but uh, for instance, yeah, you know, it could make sense if there's some internal fee market that gets developed within Lido, it's enabled by the staking module, that someone, some group or module lowers their fees to zero, and they yeah. don't monetize that way, attract a whole bunch of stake, and then they sell co-location services to their yeah. validator set. Right. Uh, or there could just be much more simple uh, sort of off-chain contracts, you know, uh, that are, you end up colluding with one another. So I, I'd be very curious about um, I think this will get played out in time and I'm not sure, you know, this is all just speculation, but I would imagine there's some amount of either monitoring or due diligence or something that these staking pool operators like Lido have to do 
on there. Yeah, I think it was, I think the state staking router will actually increase the need for more robust monitoring. Um, and you know, I know they have a close relationship with a with a, a project called uh, Rated, um, and Rated is basically you know a node operating a node operator monitoring service. Um, you know, looking at things like uptime and performance and et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, apart from uh, just generally like operationally op monitoring the operational performance of these nodes, um, there's also the subjective, you know, uh, decision of, okay, what is the healthiest, uh, I guess, way to allocate deposits across all these um, modules, right? And if you, to your point, if you just left it to the free market, um, you know, it probably the allocations would, would be heavier towards, you know, the larger, safer operators. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, I think that that's going to be, you know, as, as much as like Lido would like to minimize the surface area of, of human involvement, um, uh, in, in decision-making in the protocol. Um, I think this is one area where actually, you know, if you were to completely minimize it, then it would be not healthy for the protocol. Whereas if you were to, you know, ossify something like the withdrawal contract, you know, people would be happy with that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is likely, you know, points to the reason that something like, you know, PBS can be enshrined into the protocol. Restaking could even be enshrined into the L1, but something like liquid staking could never be enshrined at the L1 based off of the principles of, you know, Ethereum. There always needs to be somebody monitoring the deposits and the operational, you know, performance of these nodes. Yeah, I would, I would point folks for a, you know, this, this sort of trade off in between uh, something where human capital doesn't need to be involved as much as there's an old multi coin post. I think the title of it is DAO's managed risk. And it highlighted a key difference between maker and Uniswap. They were actually they were talking about it within the context of how susceptible a protocol might be to forking. And the idea being, if you're a maker, you know, one of your core competencies is that you, um, is that you underwrite a whole bunch of risk, right? Like you're managing the asset yep. and liability side of the balance sheet, you're less susceptible to forking, but I think it applies to the rest of these, to these DAOs as well. So yeah. I, think I think as yeah, it's something to consider as, yeah, well, I think it kind of ends up a little bit more. looking more like, you know, makers operations, right? Where they're looking over their balance sheet and kind of making sure that, that it's it's healthy, right? Um, I think that, that right. is, you can look at it, something like that is analogous with, you know, monitoring all these, um, uh, the health of the modules and how allocations are split between them. Um, and yeah, absolutely. That makes, you know, a lot harder to fork, um, but still there needs to be some human involvement there. Um, and it's just about minimizing that as much as possible. Yeah. All right, Miles, this was a fun one. Next episode is going to be great as well. So we're going to be diving a little bit more into what we just touched on at the end of last episode. We're going to be talking to Sriram Kanan of Eigenlayer. Uh, and we're going to be delving into kind of just getting an overview, frankly, of Eigenlayer, the protocol. I think we, uh, you know, are conceptualizing the episode as if Eigenlayer is also a, a two-sided marketplace in between, um, stakers and uh, sort of middleware operators that want access to that that stake, um, then, you know, what is the, or what are some of the drivers on the demand and supply side? And then what is this intersection going to be with big liquid staking protocols and protocols like Eigenlayer? So I think that's going to be a, a great episode as well. All right, buddy. I think we can uh, wrap it there. This was a fun one.